Hey, everybody. My name is Chad, one of the pastors here. It's my joy to uh, bring us into uh, God's Word this morning. And I want to welcome those online. If you're watching or watching later this week, we're so thankful for you and uh, just thankful for Jesus this morning. I want to pray for us as we begin. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We miss you. Lord, we long for you. Uh, I think all we need to do is to uh, look at the news, uh, look at what's happening right now, and know that our greatest need is for you. And Lord, if we don't know that this morning, if we're putting our hope in other places, God, would you make us aware? I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. God, we ask that you help us to hear this this morning, that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God, we ask that the truth of your word this morning, as we continue to uh, sit with uh, one of your followers, Luke, as he presents you to us, God, change us, transform our hearts. Christ's name, amen. Well, if you have a copy of God's word, I want to encourage you to open to Luke chapter 5, verse 33. There are three little vignettes, interactions with Jesus that we're going to look at this morning, kind of creep into chapter 6 a little bit. But I want to remind you that every story, every incident, every moment in Scripture has been curated and crafted by the Lord to put you face to face with Jesus. And if you read the Bible and you don't see Christ, you're doing it wrong. Okay? It is meant to lead you from Genesis to maps. The whole thing is to point you to Jesus, that you would see him. So we mistakenly reduce the Bible to what should I do? What shouldn't I do? How should I act? And not that we can't get those things in there. That's definitely there. It's an important question, even though it can be cliche to say, what would Jesus do? It's a great place to start, but don't stop there. Today's stories are going to put you face-to-face with Christ. But you're going to see that it's starting to, if, if there was a way to kind of, you know, when you're on a, going on a roller coaster and you're starting to climb, and what is that sound it makes? You know, you're starting to hear that thing and you're just, it's building in your, in your chest and kind of your stomach is this place of like, oh my goodness, it's this cranking up. Also tightening and twisting and putting pressure. You're going to start to see that and it's on purpose. Luke has put these stories together with the Holy Spirit so that we feel that. We start to feel this pressure and heat from the Holy Spirit. Why? To draw us, but also to force us to respond, to, resp- to, to respond to Jesus. So let's look at the first few verses, Luke 5, 33. It's a topic that a lot of us don't talk about, um, but I think you'll see why it's here. So here we go, Luke 5, 33. They said to him, These are the Pharisees. The disciples of John fast. They withhold food and they fast often. They do it a lot. They offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, well, they're eating and drinking. They're having a big old party. Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests 
fast while the bridegroom is with them. So picture a wedding, picture everybody there. We know it's a great celebration, but we really don't want anybody to eat anything today. We want to be sad about this event. We're going to just be somber. So this Jesus, this is why I use it. He's like, can you imagine that? Can you imagine being at a wedding and everybody's like, don't eat, just be sad about this event. No, he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Interesting. And then they'll fast in those days. And he kind of brings it home sometimes and he brings a parable and a story to help them understand. So he says, he told them this parable, no one tears a piece from a new garment. So nobody goes to whatever, Old Navy, American Eagle, whatever your place is, um, and buys a new shirt and says, hmm, I love this. I'm going to cut a piece from it and put it on an old piece of clothing that I have. Nobody does that. Nobody tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he's going to tear the new and the piece from the new won't match the old. It's ruined. Also, nobody puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled. Back then they used animal skins to put wine in. It would ferment. And if it was old skin, it would ferment eventually and just bust it. And so you had to do something new. So he's, he's given them something that they understand that they get. He says, and if you do it, it's going to be destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires the new. This one's kind of a dig here at the end. He says, they're like, eh, the old's good enough. So their accusation, hey, look, disciples of John are fasting often. And so when you hear that, just think, instead of saying fasting, because I know a lot of us, it's a weird thing. And I'll just be honest with you, fasting is really difficult for me. Like, I wish I was one of those guys who was like, yeah, when I fast, it's awesome. I feel so close to Jesus. You know what I feel when I fast? Hungry <laughs> and angry sometimes. And I haven't quite gotten to that place when I hear a lot of these people saying, it's so awesome. It's so amazing. And I know we're called to do it and to pursue it, but I'm just being honest with you. It's a difficult thing for me. So Pharisees are saying, hey, they do this often. Yours are eating and drinking. Is this, and this is where I struggled this week. I was actually in Pastor Sammy's office. I was tell, telling him kind of where I was in the sermon and, and where I was wasn't where I was going to be. Because um, that's sometimes how God's word works. You don't just read it and go, ah, I got it. Here it is. You got to let it kind of work on you. And so is this section about fasting? No. Even though that's the question, this is about putting you in front of Jesus face-to-face to hear from him. And so for the Pharisees, it's not really about fasting. It's about their rules, their control, control of their life. What's really at play here started all the way back in act one of the play in Genesis. And what do we see in Genesis? The first moment that somebody says, I don't like that you're telling me what to do. Satan says to Eve, did God really say, are we really supposed to do this? So it's, it's their rules versus his. In this story, they're saying, hey, why aren't you fasting? We do. But the subtext is, who are you, Jesus, to tell us what to do? That's, that's the question. And that's the question that we are confronted with. We got our own way of doing things. We decide and interpret the laws of God. And sure enough, they'd taken the laws of God and had come up with another 600 because they're super spiritual, okay? We decide, why won't you play by the rules? Our rules. Now, they fasted twice a week. Woo, super spiritual, very zealous. 
Our way is more zealous and more spiritual. Your way is cheap, Jesus, illegitimate. Amazon is wonderful, isn't it? Amazon Prime. Because I need something, I can search for it on my phone. Like we have a conversation in the middle of a conversation. Lisa and I do this sometimes. You know, we really need to. What are you doing? I'm just looking for what you're saying we need right now. Why? I'm going to get it right now. I'm going to buy it. I can even go to the store here and be looking at something and thinking, I want to buy this. Maybe. Have you ever done this in Menards or Target or whatever? You look it up. Maybe you scan it. And what are you looking for? Price and reviews. We look at the reviews. And isn't it crazy how there can be 20 great reviews and just one that's bad? And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. It could be awful. But I can see what other people say. I can stand in the store, do my research, decide if I want to buy it, see if it's a good, better price online, go up to the cashier and say, hey, look at this price right here. Will you honor this price? I mean, we are all about reviews. If enough, if enough people give four and a half stars or whatever, have good things to say about it, I might just give it a shot. And then if I buy it and I don't like it, what can I do? Send it back. It's great. It's, it's how we function. We're in this consumer capitalist society. So the Pharisees are the four and a half star religion of the day. They have the market share on spiritual capitalism. They know it. People are following them. People are afraid of them. Everybody has Pharisee prime. They know it. They, they interact with them in this whole thing. Everybody's buying their brand. And so Jesus comes in and he's messing with their street credibility, their temple credibility, whether it's true or not, people believe them. And so they've increased their market share by making new rules and new things that you have to do. So what is this about? How is this about fasting or not? So the truth is there was actually only one day they had to fast by law, the day of atonement. And yet they were doing it twice a week, twice a week. This is what we want. They're the apple and Amazon of their day. They have four and a half stars. They have control. They decide how things work. Who are you, Jesus, to tell us? So what's a modern day equivalent? Easy. You go to church a lot. You do the stuff. If, if you are somebody who is interested in Islam, you pray five times a day. I am active. I do this. Maybe it's just, I'm a good person. I go to church almost every weekend. I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't lie. I'm faithful to my spouse. I don't hurt my kids. I'm pretty good. I give myself four stars. Spiritually, four stars. I'm confident. I'm religious. I have control. And Jesus steps in and what do they feel is happening? And hopefully you feel the same thing. Control is slipping out of your hands. It's what's supposed to happen. You may give yourself four stars for all the activity that you do, but how would you answer this question if somebody said, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus? Would you say, well, I go to church. I read my Bible. I'm a pretty good person. I do this. Is that how you would answer? Or would you talk about how much you love him? Or would you talk about the fact that you would be willing to give your life for him. He knows this line and he's pushing you on it. So that's really what's on the table here. We think it's a question about fasting. We think it's just the Pharisees messing with him. It's religious activity that we engage with, in, with to maintain some level of control of our lives. 
with the ability to buy or return what we don't like about Jesus. I can take some of him, I'll send back the rest. If the product, Jesus, doesn't do all that I want, or I get tired of him, or the expectations aren't met, or maybe I feel uncomfortable, what can I do? Just send it back. A lot of people have done that. Just send it back. Walk away. Not going to stay with it. So how does Jesus answer this question about fasting? I mean, control. He talks about a wedding and feasting and this really shocking truth. Think about this, that the groom is actually taken from the bride. This is not a Liam Neeson movie. You're going to be taken. I have a particular set of skills. Like it seems like it's a crazy thing to think about that the groom is actually taken from the bride. When is that going to happen? If you read this story and you look into the future about what this would be about, when is a moment when the groom will be taken from the bride? If you're reading this story in the Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, it's years later. They would immediately connect the dots. When was the moment when the bridegroom was in the ceremony showing his love, pouring out his heart, even unto death for the bride, and then was taken? The cross. That's the moment. So he's actually prophetically speaking. And he also talks about the fabric stuff of basically where you're cutting up a shirt. I mentioned that. The wine where you want to keep the old stuff. He kind of does that dig at the end. I just, I don't really want what you have. I'll just kind of keep my own or I'll take a part of what you have. And what is he pushing? What is Jesus saying to the Pharisees really? What is he saying to us? What does the spirit of Jesus have to say to us with just this little interaction about fasting? I think it's this. You can't make room for Jesus. You can't. The creator of worlds, you can't just fit him in. You can't kind of work him into some ritualistic activity, religious thing that you're doing, or cut out a little piece of Jesus and say, yeah, I'll just put that here. Or can I keep my old wine? Can I keep my old life? That's the picture. Can I keep my old life and then maybe take a little bit of Jesus and pour it in here? Those are the pictures. That's what he's saying. And what is he pushing back to say, no, you can't make room for me. I don't want your fast, especially if you don't know who it's for or what it's for. And if it does nothing to your heart, you're missing the point of my law, distorting it beyond recognition. I don't want your old clothes. What the Bible says about our acts of righteousness, they are as filthy rags to Jesus. I don't want your containers. In Jeremiah, it says you have dug for yourselves your own cisterns and they can't hold water. They're cracked. They have holes. I don't want your clothes. I don't want your religious activity. I don't want your containers. What does he want then? What is he saying to them? I don't care about your four and a half star reviews. I am the goal. I am the target. I am the finish line. I'm the new wine, I'm the fountain, I'm the clothes, put me on, let me fill you up, transform you. This is about me, I'm it. It's all of me or nothing, I am here to take over. I'm here to take over. The bridegroom is standing right in front of you. I'm here, God in the flesh, boots on the ground. But they don't get it. And they don't really want him. They want religion. 
And the question for us, when we look at a story like this, is to say, what about me? Do I understand? Do I get it? Do I realize that it's all or nothing? That I can't just add in some of Jesus? Have I cut up the perfect garment of Jesus to patch up my old clothes? Have I taken the new wine of Jesus Christ and poured it into my old, dirty containers? Is that what I'm doing? Am I just tacking on religious activity? Do I still have the bottle from my old life, unwilling to give it up? Pharisees weren't willing to give it up. Let me show you in the next story. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees says, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So whenever you read on a Sabbath in the New Testament, you need to say, uh-oh. This, you, it, you was, might as well have said one day in June along the coast of Normandy. Okay, it is, this is about to be a conflict. Not innocent questions, not the Pharisees just wondering about Jesus. This is them looking for evidence. He is a threat, like we said, to control. And ironically, all in the name of following the law of God. Sabbath was a day set aside to remember and rest what? If we just look to Genesis, what did God do in the first six days? Work. What did he do in the seventh? Rest. So he says to us, you also rest. And it's a picture for us to say, because God has accomplished everything on the cross and in the resurrection. It's set aside to be a place of remembrance and rest and trust, not some weird rule to make you afraid. So twisted and distorted have the Pharisees made it that eventually, even when they are apart with the religious leaders in crucifying Jesus, you know what they'll say? We really want to keep the Sabbath. So let's get that guy's body off the cross because that'll violate the Sabbath. Oh, that will violate the Sabbath. Right, not killing God. That'll violate the Sabbath. So it's the Sabbath, the disciples are walking through the field, they're grabbing grain and they're kind of doing this number and eating the grain. Which question, are they stealing? Just think about it, it's not their field. If you went up on the, the ridge there, kind of went up to Garvin Heights and kind of drove through the little back way there and went to somebody's cornfield and walked through and just started. <clears throat> if, if the farmer saw you, he might just have a few words for you, right? It was actually built into the law and God made this, that you were supposed to leave grain or corn or whatever on the edges. You're supposed to be a part that you actually don't touch. Why? So the poor could walk through and grab some and eat. Isn't that interesting? It's actually kind of where we get the whole tithe thing. It's, it's God's way of blessing other people, of using things for his glory, but we're all about like, no, this is mine and I'm harvesting every single bit. So that's just a side thing. So they're not stealing, okay? But they, the Pharisees still say, hey, it's still unlawful. And here's why they said it was unlawful. Because doing this and this was work to them. So ridiculous, the laws that they'd made. Now, why are they doing it anyway? Because I think they probably knew it was wrong. Why are they doing it? 
Now remember, this is not just about the Sabbath and what's happening on the Sabbath. This is about getting you and me and the Pharisees and the disciples face-to-face with Jesus, where we're having to interact with his control or his wanting control and us wanting control. So why are they doing this anyway? I'm willing to bet that the disciples probably took their cue from Jesus. Maybe, hey, you guys hungry? Grab some. And they'd be like, you sure? You sure? Grab some, start eating, maybe kind of like, whoa, this is new. And the, the Pharisees coming up saying, what are you doing? You're breaking the laws. Now, one of the reasons, and, and it's just kind of interesting. I'm gonna, as I was studying this this week, I was like, is this about rules for the Sabbath and what we should and what we shouldn't do? You know, they're there, they're breaking the laws. And I was just like, what am I supposed to learn from this, Lord? What am I supposed to see? What can I take away from this? And what I'm going to tell you isn't the most obvious thing from the text. And I actually had to read it in a commentary. And I was like, ah, oh, there we go. That's what I was needing. And I didn't see it at first, but here it is. It's not right in your face, but it's nonetheless a certainty that you can pull from this incident. It's this, if you follow Jesus, you will be put on somebody's list. If you follow Jesus, you will be put on somebody's list. Because in order for the Pharisees to observe the comings and goings of the disciples of Jesus, what do they have to be doing? Spying on them. They are walking around following them to see what they're going to do because they are with this guy they don't like. They're being watched. They're being spied on. They're being put on a list of undesirables, a list with the title, keep an eye on these people. It's not any different today. You know, we, whether we believe it or not, live in a surveillance culture right now. The crazy thing is we have all agreed to it. If you don't believe me, watch a little documentary called The Social Dilemma on Netflix, or just think about the fact that your phone sometimes actually seems to know what you've been saying based on your shopping, based on your location. I think I told you guys that story. The one time I go fishing, like all of a sudden I look down on my phone and it says, this lure is on sale that you bought last year. I'm like, it's the one time I go fishing. I haven't been this whole, and it's like, as I pull out of the parking lot, bloop, Amazon pops it up. Hey, we just noticed that you might be interested in this. We've agreed to this based on the thing I talked about before, Amazon. It's our comfort. We like it. But are we opened to something of people watching us for what we do here, listening to us? Now, you don't see me as some conspiracy guy or whatever, but let me just tell you right now. In China, they have something called the social credit system. And it is that there are cameras everywhere, listening devices everywhere, and they basically allow people to have freedoms in society or not, to buy and sell in society or not, based on what they say, what they do. You can have those credits taken from you, a surveillance culture. We live in that right now, but that's not the point. That's not the point. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be put on a list, another tier that is more dangerous. I would love to have seen the look on the disciples' faces when the Pharisees, I just kind of pictured them like in this grain field and the Pharisees kind of coming out of the, the grain, like, ah, caught you, you traitor. You're in for it now. When you begin to follow Jesus, and I mean follow, like we talked about last week with Matthew, 
your whole life, every room, everything, every dollar, every person in your life. Bank it, count on it, the fact that you will become a target. You will become a target. And at times that will even come from people within religious culture. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this? We stay close to Jesus. We stay close to Jesus. Our first instinct is to, that's a little scary. I don't know if I want that kind of attention. I think I'll back off a little bit. I'll find some, another community or a blogger that I think is a little more tolerant about religious stuff and not so intense. And I don't wanna be on anybody's list. I don't wanna make waves. Don't do it. Don't do it. Stay close to Jesus. Be in his word. Be in a church that teaches the absolute truth of the word of God, both Old and New Testaments and the gospel. And if it's not this one, please find one. Please find one. You're going to find that they're imperfect, just like us. And if we haven't disappointed you yet, just give us time. We'll do it, okay? We're imperfect people following a perfect Jesus. But be in one of those places around a group of believers whom you know will stand with Jesus when the stuff starts flying. And would we all agree that the stuff is beginning to fly? Yes. That's what I see right away when I watch the disciples just innocently doing this. And then here come the people who are in charge and we see you, we see what you're doing. We know who you're with. What will you do? How will you respond? It's no coincidence that Paul, who also experience being put on lists, wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would the spirit lead him to write that unless he was being given the opportunity and even tempted to be ashamed, right? You don't write it unless it's something that's a threat. I'm not ashamed, but I know I'm tempted to be ashamed. Being ashamed is when you pretend to be following Jesus. Yet when it gets uncomfortable, when you feel like you're being put on a list, you bail when it gets hard. How about you? Are you still in? You still willing to do this? You ready to be on somebody's list? I've been in the book of Hebrews for my, it's one of the places in my chair time. I think I've told you guys before, I read the Bible in one year app. Um, it's put out by Alpha Ministries. And so I've been in Hebrews for the New Testament reading. And I just got to Hebrews 10, which I'd prefer to skip. You know why? Because it's the part that's uncomfortable. It's the hard part. It's the put on list part. It's the part that says suffering. It's the part that says public reproach. It's the part that says they'll take your property. It's the part that says you may go to prison. Ooh. I got to tell you, it's hard. It's hard to think about. It's hard to think about that with my family and my children. And yet there's not a character in the Bible that didn't go through some level of discomfort or suffering when they committed to following Jesus. And as much as this is about the Pharisees coming and gaining evidence on Jesus, it is equally about them going after you. Because that's what they're doing. They're going after his followers. How does Jesus answer? With scripture. He knows the Bible. He wrote it. <laughs> he knows that when David ate the showbread of the temple and his men were hungry, it didn't violate the law. One, because they were in need, but two, because David was the king. And he was functioning 
almost in a priestly role as well. And so that didn't violate the rules. And so what does Jesus, Jesus say when he shares this story? Someone who happened to be in the Messianic line, who also is the king, a descendant of David. What is he saying to them? Um, yeah, I'm God. And what I say goes, and it's not a violation. I'm the one who created the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. This isn't an innocent statement. This is him basically saying, I'm the one who created this. He's revealing himself as God. He is the ultimate interpreter of the law. And what he says is what everyone will be held to. So Jesus is drawing a line that clearly shows that you either are standing with him or you are not. There is no in between. As we face accusation, condemnation, attack, from the enemy or anybody who might represent him, we must stand with the king no matter what that may cost us. And I love that picture of the disciples as the Pharisees came close and maybe they're eating the stuff and they start accusing. And here's what I picture them doing, kind of like with grain in their mouth, chewing very slowly and there's Jesus and they're like, kind of like a kid who gets behind their dad and says, I'm with him. Let's stand close, no matter what that may cost us. One final little story to show you that this is where we're headed, but also to hear a call from Jesus this morning. Verse six, on another Sabbath, Jesus, come on. <laughs> you're just begging for it. You know, you're doing this on purpose, aren't you? He's like, well, yeah. Are you trying to get yourself killed? Uh, yes. Yes, I am. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered. Another way to say this is he was disabled. He was unable to use it, which meant he would have been hiding it in shame. Okay, it's kind of how they handled these things. The scribes and the Pharisees watched him. First, you have to say, how did this guy get in there? He's a setup. It's a setup. He's been brought. So the Pharisees are watching Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, bummer, and said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. I can imagine him right here by me. Come stand here. He rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was restored, but they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Pharisees are coming after him, but as we said, they don't just come after him. They come after the disciples and now, hey, let's throw this guy in here too because we don't care about him. He's just somebody we can use to get to Jesus. So let's throw in the guy who's hurt who's ashamed, who's broken, who's disabled and use him. And so they bring him in. And the man, man with the withered hand is standing there. And this is important because the Pharisees, though they're using him, you know what Jesus is gonna do through this whole thing? Where his focus is ultimately going to be on the guy that they intend to use. 
he is going to show compassion and love. They're watching him. They're watching his disciples. And now they're watching the man. Is he going to be complicit, guilty by association, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath? Think about this for a second. What are they saying Jesus has the ability to do? It's crazy. When you're given over to sin and darkness, you're just so held captive by it. You don't even realize the ridiculous thing that you just said. Are you going to heal him? Are you saying I can heal? Because that's what I think you're saying. You're saying you actually think I can heal. Are you going to heal him on the Sabbath? That's how crazy the Pharisees were in their approach to the law. They're going to be mad if this guy's life gets better. If you find yourself in that kind of place, it's, it's off. It's really off. They don't see Jesus for who he is. It's unbelief. It's hardness of heart. It's lack of compassion. It's dark. It's against Jesus. It is anti-Christ. There is no in-between. They are so against Jesus, they can't even be for him when he does something good that we would all agree is good. So let me just throw this out there. To be against Jesus doesn't put you in a neutral place. To be against him is to be for his and our primary adversary, Satan. Like I said, it goes all the way back to Genesis. This thing all began back there. That's act one. We're in act three. Okay. It all connects back and you cannot be in the middle. You cannot stand in neutral ground like, I'm just an innocent bystander here. Nope. You are either for him or against him. Anti-Christ. Wow. These little stories about fasting and picking grain and Jesus healing are all making me a little uncomfortable. Like everything is on the line and they are somehow always about whether or not I am surrendered completely to Jesus. Exactly. Exactly. That's how you're to read these. While these three incidents seem to be religious turf wars on the outside, the Pharisees didn't want him messing with their power or control. And it was. Luke is attempting to compel you with the gospel. He is wanting you to know that every story, every incident, every moment is pointing to Jesus as the King, Sovereign, and Lord and Savior of all. As I said, no neutral ground. You are either for him or against him. So it says he knew their thoughts. Wow. Let that sink in. You can run, but you can't hide. He knows. Knows what you're thinking about this morning, right now. What about the guy with the withered hand? Where is he in this and where does he stand? And it's an important person to focus on as we finish, because I think it's, it's the same place we are. You're watching him right here and you don't know. What is he going to do? Is he for Jesus? Is he against him? Is he innocent? Is he a pawn in the Pharisees game of chess against Jesus? We're waiting to see. For Jesus though, he is about to become public friend number one. He is to become a target of Jesus, someone to be loved because back then, physical sickness, people immediately connected it to spiritual sickness. So the guy was a sinner in the Pharisees' minds. Proper thing for this man would be to keep his hand concealed. In fact, he shouldn't even be in the synagogue. He would be in shame, broken, hide at all costs. Jesus is listening to the thoughts 
all around the room. He knows what they're planning. He knows what the man is thinking and feeling. He knows what you are thinking and feeling right now. And so he asked the man to stand close to him. Come stand here. What a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus. Come close, stand here. And so he says this, and it's interesting. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Destroy it? What do you... We're just asking you if you're going to heal the guy. We're not asking if you're going to strike him down. No one here is trying to destroy a life. No one here is trying to destroy someone. Hmm. Or are they? There's so much going on here. It would be in and around a Sabbath day celebration that religious leaders would conspire to destroy the very God-man standing in front of them. Jesus is prophetically speaking about his own death again. He's doing more than just reading their minds. He is talking about the fact that they indeed will try to destroy him. They are the pawns being used by God to carry it out. But before he does anything, and this is kind of where I want you to land, hopefully this morning as you think about these passages, he does something really interesting this is the kind of stuff that it usually takes me two or three days of reading and spending time in the passage before I see it. And before he does anything, he asks the guy, come stand close to me. And then he does this. Text says he looked at each of them. If you look in the New Living Translation, I was reading that at home one morning and it says he looked at them one by one. Just kind of read it and I was like, Ugh knew their thoughts, about to do something amazing, just told the guy to stand close to him, and he looks each of them in the eye, one by one. And then he speaks to the man. Don't skip that part. Think about it. Think about Jesus looking at you, knowing your thoughts right now. But what he says to him is, stretch out your hand. Hold out your hand to me. Reach out your hand to me. Do you have parts of your life that you keep covered, hidden, so private that you would be horrified if anybody saw them? And this guy is just like that. He lives like this all the time, in shame, disappointment, brokenness. Yet Jesus says, show it to me. Show it to me. Hold out your hand. Forget about them. I know what they're doing. I know what this whole thing is for them. Forget about them. You stand close to me. You reach out your hand to me. And in my spirit, in the quiet place of my heart, when I read this, I hear this. Chad, even if it costs you everything, stretch out your heart to Jesus. Even if it costs you everything, stretch out your heart to Jesus. This story in this gospel is a call. Yes, it's about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, but that's just the skin. That's just the cover. It's a call to let your life and your heart, your sin and your hurts be exposed and laid before Jesus. And to do so will bring ridicule from society. Is he really going to church? You're in a Bible study? What do you mean you went forward? You really believe all that crazy stuff? But it will bring healing and wholeness from Jesus. Jesus is asking us to redefine our lives by his life. And so what, did he, what does he get? What do the Pharisees, how do they respond when he does this? Is it, well, I guess he could heal. Great job, Jesus. Rage and fury. And what does it say? They looked for an opportunity to do something to him. 
We're going to do something to him. Expect nothing less in your life. It will cost you, but you will gain everything. What will the man do? What will you do? I can see Jesus looking at this man, asking him, just, just right here, right here. Don't look at them. I know. Keep your eyes fixed on me and reach out your hand. He did it. He did it. He took a risk. And when he did, instantly healed. Faith in Jesus is a risk, but it is a risk worth taking. That's the worship team to come forward. Jesus is here this morning, hearing your thoughts and my thoughts, looking at us and asking, will you stretch out your heart to me? Let's pray. Lord, I love your word. I love sometimes how when I start to read it, it I'm confused or I'm dismissive, maybe thinking, oh, this is something that I've read before and I don't get it. And Oh, Lord, you're just bringing a new way and you're just trying to show the Pharisees that their laws were dumb. And then I can kind of move on. But Lord, as I listened for my own heart this, this week, I, I kept hearing you just this, this phrase, look at me. Look at me, Chad. Stretch out your hand. Hear my heart, my voice. Stand close to me. Yes, it's getting difficult, isn't it? And Lord, I say, absolutely, it's getting difficult. There are lists being made, even as we speak. And we know the enemy has had us on his list from the moment we said yes to you. But Lord, I just want to say for my own part, Lord, I have nowhere else to go. I pray God for those this morning who are looking at you and maybe they're considering that you are more than just someone who uh, is asking them to do the right things or to live the right way. God, they're beginning to see what the disciples saw, what the man in the synagogue saw, or what eventually a couple of Pharisees would see. You are beautiful. Your name is above all names. You are the God who saves. Lord, you're the one who has done the work for us so that we find true rest in you. So God, we just take the last couple of minutes here as we sing, we ask that your spirit would draw us. You would crank up that pressure and heat and that we would respond, Lord, by stretching out our hearts to you. We ask this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.